Welcome back, friends, to another edition of Living Hope Broadcast with me, Bishop Ken Hodge. It's good to be with you again. And as always, our prayer for you is that you would find hope and encouragement with these messages. And today, as Easter is actually fast approaching, we want to begin a two-part mini-series entitled Beyond the Open Door. So just go with me if you can to your Bible. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to read from verses 7 through 8. And here is how the scripture reads. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who, he who holds the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we are so grateful for you today. We thank you for your goodness, for your grace, and for your love and kindness and your tender mercies. Father God, we ask that you would touch somebody today who's listening or viewing this broadcast wherever they are in the world. Touch them, encourage them, give them hope, and remind them that you are God of all. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. As I said today, we're going to be talking about the open door. And God gave me clarity recently on something and it actually blew my mind. And here's what he told me. He says, the vision of the church shouldn't be determined by the size of its congregation or the limitations of its location or the restriction of its budget. But instead, the church should set their vision based on the power of their God. Hallelujah. God is infinite. Yeah, he's awesome. He's magnificent. And he is mighty. He is actually beyond description or comprehension. So when he chooses to open doors of opportunity, the possibilities are actually endless. All we need to do is trust him, follow him wherever he leads. I know that's difficult, but we have to trust him and follow him wherever he leads. Oftentimes, now I want you to get this, God opens and closes doors according to his sovereign will and his infinite wisdom. And when he closes doors of opportunity, he doesn't do it to mess around with us. He doesn't do it to spite us or to frustrate us, right? Uh, instead, he closes doors to open other doors. I, I don't know about you, but friends, but, but this truth gives me immense reassurance because I can trust in a God who knows what he's doing and more importantly, why he's doing what he's doing. Even though I don't understand it sometimes, I can still trust in him because I know that he knows what he's doing. At the same time though, uh, it may see the seemingly endless 
closing and opening of doors can make make us feel like like we're running sometimes through a maze trying to find the elusive will of God around the next bend or around the next corner as a result we sometimes become upset as paths or directions we really want to take are suddenly blocked in front of our eyes while we are pulled kicking and screaming through other doors that we don't want to enter. I admit to you friends, as a human being is difficult. Now stress that again, it is difficult to stay patient trusting God to reveal his will or his plan to us, especially when he does it only one step at a time. Difficult, you know? So, and if we are truly honest with ourselves, most of us would admit, if you're honest with yourself, friend, if you're honest with yourself, friend, most of us will admit that we like being in charge of our own lives. After all, we believe it's our life. So we like calling the shots. We want to make our own decisions and accomplish the task that we set out to do. But I want you to understand something now, friends. If we do God's work, we sometimes want to plan and execute it in our own way uh, and on our own terms. But I got some news for you. And I want to tell you something. Here's what I, here's what I know. Here's what I know. We need to get to that place where we come to the understanding that only God and God alone, only God and God alone is qualified to make decisions regarding his work. Only God and God alone, not we, him, it's his work. You know? So we are sinful, but he's holy. We are deceitful, but he is actually true. We are weak and inadequate, but he is strong and powerful. So when it comes uh, to the course of our lives, God alone is in charge. Not us. Not you. Not me. God alone is in charge. And the church in the ancient city of Philadelphia is a classic example of this. So even though it was the youngest of the seven churches at the time, and quite likely the smallest of the churches, this church received nothing but, but condemnation from Jesus Christ. The, these believers understood that the greatness of God far outweighed their humble circumstances. They also knew that their responsibility as a church was simple. Acknowledge the open door of opportunity that was set before them and move through with confidence. Amen, somebody. But before I, I, I go further, uh, let me set what I believe is some necessary foundation for us to grasp as we unpack this word. Uh, it is important for us to understand how to biblically respond to an open door. That's very important. In order to do that, we must first understand what an open door actually is. So in its basic form, an open door presents an opportunity for Christian service that has not always been there and that will not always 
be there. That's very important to grasp. So that is to say three things specifically. The door that God opens is due to circumstances that he brings together that are totally beyond you and I. Praise God, somebody. The Apostle Paul gives us a good example of this in his second letter to the church at Corinth. He said in 2 Corinthians um, 2 and 12, When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord has opened a door for me. So be wary then of distractions because they can prevent us from seeing what God has placed actually before us. So be wary of distractions. So and, and number two, an open door does not preclude or exclude or prevent opposition. In fact, open doors comes with loads of Opposition. I like what Paul said again to the church at Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians 16 and 9. He said, because a greater door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. So some of us quit friends in the face of opposition. When we should be moving through, we quit. But can I tell somebody today that opposition is a clue that you're in the right place? So when you see opposition raise up, then you know, listen, I'm where I belong. Because you're opposing, I know I'm in the right place. And finally, we need to be spiritually sensitive and remain in deep prayer in order to see and to seize the opportunity that God has presented before us. Otherwise, we can actually miss it. Here's what Paul said again. To, um, Paul said to the church at Colossae in Colossians 4 and 3. He said, pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. I like what the late um, coach John Wooden said. Um, he said, when opportunity comes, it is too late to prepare. And former UK Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli said, he said, a man must be ready for his time when it comes. So now is now this is what it has been set before the church in Philadelphia. Opportunity has been set before them. An open door has been set before them. So to go through or not go through that is actually the question so i must point out to you then that um th their circumstances uh, affecting a decision must always be evaluated with biblical boundaries that's very important the circumstances affecting any decision that we make church must be evaluated in accordance with biblical boundaries. An open door does not always mean go. It does not mean go. Because some open doors can actually lead us to vacant elevator shafts. And we, we go through, we fall down and bam, that's it. So if it's not biblical, then an open door is just a source of temptation. So we must be able to recognize biblical boundaries when it comes to open door. But if you are following biblical commands and principles, then God will confirm his will for your life via an open door. 
So he is a providential father in reality. He's in control and in charge then of everything. So look for God to validate guidance by opening doors for you. Somebody praise God today. So doors, my friends, are mentioned throughout the scripture. We can find mention of doors in the Old Testament. We can find them in the New Testament. But oftentimes they're not mentioned with the same meaning. That is to say, there are various types of doors. Let's unpack that for a little bit. So doors, for example, in Revelations 3 and 20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. He said, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So this type of door that we're speaking about there is actually a door of intimacy with Christ. So this passage of scripture illustrates to us then the willingness of God to pursue believers who have actually grown cold in their relationship with God. God is willing to come after you. Some of us don't want to come after folk, but God is willing to come after you. So the concept of Jesus knocking at the door of the church and waiting for the church to actually open the door to let him in, it cannot be overstated, the imagery of that. So another type of door in the scripture is the door of salvation. And we see in John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So here Jesus was teaching the remarkable truth, my friends, that he and he alone is the only way to salvation. Not anybody else, just him. If anyone wants to come to the Father, he said, he has to come by me. So he is the only way to salvation. So there is no other way. Inside that door, there is safety and everything that we need. Somebody praise God, somebody. And there is a third type of door mentioned in the scripture. And this door is a door that we spoke about earlier. It's called the door of opportunity. And the Apostle Paul mentions that, as I said before, in Colossians 4 and 3, he says, Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open a door to us for the word, he says. God would open a door to us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. I'm in bondage over the word. So throughout the annals of history, people have found that God has a unique way of providing opportunities for fruitful service and hearts ready to accept the gospel. So let's, let's dig a little bit deeper now into the letter that Christ wrote to the church in Philadelphia. But a, a little bit of background here, um, the ancient city of Philadelphia was a city that was strategically located on the road to Rome to the east and it was a strong fortress city. It was a city of major 
influence in in the area that it was located on the edge of a great volcanic plain which was very fertile it was a center of worship for this greek god by the name of dionysus which is the god of wine and its proximity to active volcanoes was a constant threat and people in the most part actually lived outside of the city due to the threat of falling buildings within the city walls. But Philadelphia, however, was more than just a gateway to the east or a fertile valley. It was also an open door. A door of opportunity. And that's what Jesus was actually telling the church. In Philadelphia, there was a small group of Christians who were faithful to the task. Hallelujah, somebody. They were neither large in number, they were not powerful or influential, but they were significant enough for God who to take the time out to actually write them a personalized letter. And if we would examine the letter a little closer, we would discover a few telling insights about the writer of the letter. Somebody praise God today. So in this letter, like others he had actually written before, Jesus introduces himself in terms that are quite relevant, I believe, to the reader. He introduces himself and, and, and he uses, he, he says three actually distinct things about himself that cannot be denied and in any way shape or form listen to what he says I, I believe he's talking to somebody out there watching this program today he says first he says he is holy that that means he's morally perfect without flaw or blemish holiness my friends is a very vital and important attribute of God Almighty. Somebody shout Amen. He says he is true. T-R-U-E. That means that he is the one behind everything. The one who is wholly trustworthy and reliable. And finally he says, get this part, he holds the key. But not just any key but a key that he actually uses. He holds the key of David. Now, this, this is very, very, very interesting, friends, that we need to unpack this just a little bit more. I think so. We need to just go a little deeper in this one just a little bit. So it, 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 this takes us back, actually, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 22. And in this chapter, the prophet Isaiah condemns the city of Jerusalem. The Israelites had just been delivered by God from their enemies and were camped outside their city. But they showed no gratitude to God for the divine rescue. Bend over backwards to help some folk and they don't even show you some sort of gratitude. They don't even offer you a Thank you. Uh, I don't know if that may sound too familiar to some folk. You know, you, you went out of your way to help some folk and they didn't even say thank you. So, the ch that's, so that's the charge that I, Isaiah lays at the feet of Israel, that they were self-sufficient. 
their own men and women. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. Trusting only in their weapons and in their efforts and in strengthening the city walls and so on. They had, like some of us, forgotten the words that Solomon said to trust in the Lord with all your heart. So after condemning the city, can't afford to miss this. Isaiah now turns his attention to the chief steward who was named Shebna. And he, he, he was also guilty of a similar sin. He was guilty of seeing himself as indispensable. He was guilty of seeing himself as if nothing could happen without him. He was guilty because he saw himself as the central figure, the primary figure in Israel's victory. He was guilty because he saw himself and he called himself a mighty man as he did in verse 17 of, of chapter 22. So what we know about Shatna actually is that he was so full of himself that he paraded through the streets in a mighty chariot and prepared for himself a splendid grave. Heaven didn't take too kindly to this. And as a result of what God deemed to be unfaithful servers, Shapna was replaced by Eliakim. I'm going somewhere with this. Hang in there with me. He was replaced with by Eliakim. And when we get, friends, understand this. Listen to me carefully. When we get too self-absorbed, God usually finds a replacement for us. When we think too highly of, of ourselves that it can't happen without me, God says, no, mm -mm, it can't happen without you. Yes, a replacement is coming. So now you must understand the significance of the imagery here that the chief steward of the city held the key of David. This was the master key, not only to the city, but to the palace as, as well. So he was second only to the king and control who could come in and who could actually go out. He, he could control who had access to the king and who didn't have access to the king. He was the one who opened the doors and the one who shut the doors. So listen to what Isaiah said to, 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 to Shebna to warn him of God stripping his authority. In Isaiah 20 and, and, and verse 22, here's what he said, beginning from verse 20. He said, in that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasting your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. You got to be careful if you mess with God. God will mess with us. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to how and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place and he will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. Friends, whenever we start to believe that we and we alone are responsible for our own success, our own good fortune, that's when we run 
into problems with heaven. Whenever we start to believe that I am big and mighty and I'm responsible and me alone, that's when we run into problems with heaven. Imagine, just imagine for a little while what you might become if you learn, if, if you learn to lean and the strength of God instead of your own strength. Don't miss this, don't miss this, don't miss this, don't miss this at all, don't miss this. Shebna sought glory, but he was denied. But Eliakim sought nothing and found honor. So to tie it all together, we see the same imagery coming into being in Revelation 3 and 7. When Jesus, in, in essence, announces that he is the new Eliakim, the one who holds the keys to the palace, not just the earthly door, but the doors to heaven as well. Christ and Christ alone can open the doors and close the doors, which allow people to actually enter the kingdom. So he's in control of all the opportunities that we have. And no opportunity is going to be appointed unto us except through him. Somebody praise God today. Praise Him where you are today. Praise Him where you are. We have run right out of time today. We're going to have to stop here. But join me next week where we pick up with part two of The Open Door. This is Bishop Ken Hart saying, God bless you. Just join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, touch your people. Comfort them where they are. Oh God, uplift them where they are. We know that you are more than able. And remember these words, friends, from Romans 8 and 31. If God be for us, then who can be against us? Blessings.